I'm John Doberstein, Senior Editor at No-Till Farmer, and welcome to the latest edition of our 2018 No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Balancing Insecticide Use and Soil Health Through an Integrated Pest Management Approach, is brought to you by Yetter Manufacturing Company. I encourage you to subscribe to this series currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes when they're released. If you have another app you use for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll make an effort to get it listed there as well. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yetter Manufacturing Company for sponsoring today's episode. With a tradition of providing farmer solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter Manufacturing delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O dot com. Integrated Pest Management, or IPM, is more than just knowing what to spray and when, John Tucker says. The Penn State University entomologist says no-tillers need to think more broadly about their approach to insect control to consider how the use of insecticides impacts soil health, on-farm diversity of beneficial insects, and whole no-till farming systems. Tucker will look how you can lessen dependence on insecticides for control of slugs and other pests of corn and soybeans to capture the benefits of helpful insects and improve your no-till production system at the same time. Now let's listen in as Tucker discusses the natural processes plants have to combat insect pests, the natural predators and beneficial insect species that help control damaging insects, and the relationship between the soil food web and well-being of beneficial insects and predators. Plant defenses and natural enemies are what plants use to defend themselves in kind of these natural areas. And just as an example, we have pine trees, right? If we all took a big spoonful of pine sap, we'd get a raging stomach ache, right? If you guys have time, I'm game. <laughs> but it's probably not the best idea. But pine sap is rich in toxins like something called monoterpenes, sesquiterpenes. These things have evolved in plants over the years as defenses against insects and pathogens, okay? That smell of a pine tree, if you had a Christmas tree this year, that smell is alpha pinene, right? It's an anti-herbivore compound. There are some insects and some pathogens that attack pine trees. Like here's one, the, the pine hawk moth. It only feeds on pine trees. So it can tolerate, it can detoxify some of these compounds that are in high densities in pine trees. But it's a specialist, it feeds on nothing else. So this thing is not threatening corn or soybeans. In fact, if it was feeding on corn and soybeans, it would probably die because it's so well adapted to pines. There are exceptions to kind of the rule that kind of native insects don't cause problems or insects don't cause problems in natural areas is what I meant to say, ignore that native thing. So insects don't cause problems in natural areas. This is central Pennsylvania and we see this about every seven years. This is an outbreak of a certain pest species and you probably know what it is. Gypsy moth, there you go. So every seven or years or so we have a gypsy moth outbreak, but where did gypsy moth come from? It's not Asia. If we had the Asian gypsy moth, we'd be in a world of hurt. The Asian gypsy moth females fly. This is a European gypsy moth. Females don't fly. If the females fly, they fly and they disperse their eggs over a wider area. That's why gypsy moth has been kind of slow to move across the United States. It's only kind of reached Wisconsin. Maybe that's the corn belt stopping it. But anyway, this is gypsy moth. We see it. So gypsy moth was accidentally introduced to North America from a knucklehead in Boston who was trying to start a North American silk industry. Four moths got out of his bedroom window and we have this outbreak Every seven years in Pennsylvania, and you see the same thing in New York State, Maryland, Virginia, and just kind of goes on, right? So this is an exotic species that's going to town on native oak trees. The oak trees don't have the right defenses to stop it, and the natural enemies that live in that forest don't know they should eat it, because they've only been with it for about 50 years, rather than a couple thousand years, or a couple million years, um, like would happen in a native habitat. So plants aren't sitting ducks in natural areas. They defend themselves 
right? They have tolerance, resistance. They have various mechanisms to prevent themselves from being fed upon. Little spines, hairs that will stop caterpillars, um, stop thrips, those type of things. And these toxic chemicals like in the pine sap. And then we have the other side of the coin are these predators and parasitoids that come and eat the things eating on the, feeding on the plants. There's an old saying in the world that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. These guys are the enemies of the herbivores, so they're the friend of the plant, right? And that plants actually have mechanisms to encourage these guys to be around. There's actually a level of chemical communication that when a plant starts to be fed upon, it, has, it makes these volatile chemicals that actually attracts these things to the feeding herbivore, which is kind of cool. Okay, and then crop fields are unnatural. A lot of growers don't like to hear this, um, but it's because these are monocultures, right? They're monocultures as far as the eye can see in some cases, and you don't see an equivalent of that in the natural world very often, right? It's pretty rare. And then there's our artificially selected plants. So these were selected for yield, right? They're not selected for plant defenses. If plant breeders worked for the last 70 years generating corn plants that were resistant to caterpillars or what have you, they would have succeeded by now, but we wouldn't have any yield. <laughs> kind of a fool's errand, right? So we are selecting for yield at the cost of plant defenses, right? So they have wheat plant defenses, they have little genetic diversity, um, and they're genetically uniform, which means if an insect or a pathogen can feed on one plant in that cornfield, it can feed on all the plants in the cornfield. So it's an ideal setting for pests. Layer on top of that that all the crops come from elsewhere. So corn's from Central America, soybeans from Asia, Wheat and alfalfa come from the Middle East. And just through kind of trade and international commerce, every once in a while their pest species arrive here. It's just dumb luck, but it happens. Soybean aphid, cereal, leaf beetle, European corn borer, right? They get here just by chance, and then we have to deal with them. And these pests, when they arrive, are free of their natural enemies. Like there's no natural enemies in a cornfield that really know how to eat European corn borer very well. All right, so I did my PhD research in tall grass prairies of central Illinois. And you rarely see a pest outbreak there. Can't really call them pests, but just an herbivore outbreak. So I think it's good to be inspired by these natural systems and mim mimic them as much as we can. So if you can really push diversity on your farm, you're not gonna get to a prairie, right? Um, but you might be better off in terms of the diversity that your farm holds, and that might support these natural enemies better. So these guys have diversity in time and space. There's a, uh, when, if you just consider flowering, the flowering starts early in the season and extends well into the season because the different species turn on. Um, and the different species are more active at different times of the year. There are early sprouting ones, there are late sprouting ones. And it's kind of a beautiful system. Okay? And in these systems, natural enemies really dominate. Right? So if there's a caterpillar feeding on a leaf in a prairie plant, it's going to be fairly well protected somehow. It might be sequestering the plant toxins and using it against the natural enemies. Um, it's kind of cool little uh, ecological interactions that I enjoy studying. But in your crop fields, you can find lots of these guys also, right? Particularly in soybeans. Uh, in corn, you can see uh, oodles of these guys, particularly around um, times of pollination, when there's a lot of pollen around, a lot of these natural enemies will feed upon pollen. And if you can harness these guys, you can get a good level of pest control, okay? It's, not, it's imperfect, it's sometimes it doesn't happen when you want, but in, sometimes we can capture it experimentally. This is work by a colleague of mine at Iowa State University, this is Matt O'Neill, he's a good friend of mine. And he did a very simple experiment with soybean aphid. He put soybean aphids on plants that were exposed to natural enemies, or plants that had natural enemies kind of excluded like this, right? So you put this cage up around, natural enemies cannot come and go. In this cage, the cage is there just to control for the presence of the cage, but natural enemies can come and go and access the aphids. So he put 10 aphids on the plants early in the season, and then two months later, sorry, two weeks later, the number of aphids on these cage plants where natural enemies cannot come and go is about 1,000 aphids per plant. And the ones where natural enemies can come and go, still at 10, right? So the natural enemies have access to the aphids and they eat them. So one of the things I was asked to talk about is kind of a soil health aspect, right? So, you know, this is a soil food web, has a simple statement that organic matter is the fuel that powers food webs, and that's true, right? Um, yeah, there's organic matter, fungi grow there, bacteria grow there, protozoa, nematodes, but the arthropods come in later, right? The arthropods are feeding upon those smaller things. They're also helping with decomposition. They're shredding a lot of the larger material and making it more available for the little guys like these fungi, protozoa, nematodes, and whatnot. Um, but they're, the, they're kind of the midpoint of this soil food web. They're things that are bigger than them. They're things that are smaller than them. 
And they're kind of neat when you start to think about them. You might read about this stuff. Soil microfauna, these are the real small things in your fields. Uh, they can include a lot of arthropods, like these pseudoscorpions, which are pretty sweet. Um, mites feeding on mites. Columbolins, also called springtails. Uh, nematodes, most of these are arthropods. Certainly the nematodes aren't. But these guys are controlling decomposition. They're controlling mineralization. Um, they're fragmenting organic matter and making uh, soil organic matter, right? Um, they're, they're pooing a lot, right? All these organisms have to excrete. That is enhancing soil, building soil organic matter. They're providing some level of biological control, but they're really small, so they're just attacking the really little things. Uh, and then they're most importantly here, well, the most important is maybe the fecal pellets, but other, in my mind, food for bigger things. So they're being fed upon by things like these guys. So soil macrofauna, even bigger things, right? Uh, these have been called ecosystem engineers. Uh, everyone knows that term for earthworms, but these other guys can be, uh, be called that as well. They're creating pores and channels in the soil by burrowing through. That's earthworms again, but think about a carabid beetle larva burrowing through the soil. It's doing the same thing. A soldier beetle larva, a um, firefly larvae, they're moving through the soil. They're not just asking the soil to get out of the way. They're moving through it, getting out of the way, and they're also crapping as they go, right? So that soil organic matter is uh, being increased. And the big one here that you'll get this theme is, is biological control. So these guys, whether it's these staphylinid beetles, tiger beetles, jumping spiders, they're eating other things out there. And my favorite, as you guys probably saw last night, are these ground beetles, right? So these ground beetles are the ones that were eating the slugs last night. Well, I often slip up and call them carabid beetles. That's their family. Family is carabidae, so you just call them carabids, but ground beetles, it's synonymous. The adults and the larvae are predaceous. They're fairly pretty. They like slugs. They like caterpillars. Some will climb up, up, climb up on plants and eat aphids and that type of thing. And actually been shown that the ones that climb up on plants actually drive herbivores off and makes them more available to the thing, other things roaming around the soil so they can work together. Slugs fear these things. It's a weird thing to think about studying, but there's a large number of researchers in the world who study fear. And they're starting to figure out that invertebrates fear also. Mostly it's done in vertebrates. So I have a colleague at Penn State who studies um, like alpaca-like animals in the south and how their fear hormone changes when a big cat's around, right? I mean, that's pretty cool research, but we have the same thing here. It's more accessible, right? You guys can do this at home if you want to scare slugs. Carabid beetles will also eat weed seeds, so that's another kind of benefit. Depending on the species, they're either more or less prone of eating these grain seeds, right? When I talk about insecticides, I talk about all insecticides. Sometimes people just hear me beating on seed treatments, but um, I talk about foliar, soil-applied insecticides, seed treatments are valuable tools, right? Our plants are kind of sitting ducks compared to those plants in a natural system because of the artificial selection, so we need insecticides to protect them occasionally when the pest population kind of gets out of control. But using them appropriately is the kind of the way to go. Using them within an IPM framework is my preference. Rather than putting them in a burn down, rather than just putting them on because you're going across the field anyway, think of the harm that you could be causing by doing that. Using a pesticide when you don't need it is silly, right? Why would you medicate yourself unless you need it? We don't typically take prophylactic antibiotics. Why would you do that to your field, right? And then there are these unintended consequences. I mentioned one of them last night in terms of slugs, and I'll revisit that briefly for those of you who weren't able to attend last night. There are some environmental concerns about insecticides getting in water. Um, this, is, this is a growing concern with neonics. Um, neonics are being found in water kind of all over the country, and that's kind of concerning. Um, I can talk about that at the end if you're interested, but that wasn't my goal here today. Um, but we're gonna take a little diversion just to emphasize the value of natural enemies, okay? Let's go to Yellowstone National Park. We're in Cincinnati. It's um, nice and warm here today. If we went to Yellowstone, it might be colder, but the, the view might be prettier, right? So Yellowstone is the first national park established. It's pretty darn big. It's like 3,000 square miles, right? It's a big space. And in 1925, the last wolf was killed in Yellowstone National Park. In 1995, they reintroduced wolves. That's a good thing if you're an ecologist, you want to understand these interactions. Um, that's a good thing if you think that places like Yellowstone National Park should be wild, in quotations. Right? They're putting the ecosystem kind of more back to where it has been or maybe the way we think it should be. Right? But who's going to get worked up about this? Right? Your livestock farmer that lives next to Yellowstone National Park. Right? 
So he's a farmer just like you. And if there's sheep or cattle are getting killed, he's going to be fired up about that. And they have the right to shoot wolves when they come off the national park and onto their property, right? This gentleman here seems like he had a good day, right? This gentleman here, I'm not sure if he's a farmer or just a friend of the farmer, but he, he has the expectation, if we got inside his orange cap, he, we, he has the expectation that he's helping, right? He is killing those wolves because those wolves are killing livestock. He's going to shoot them, and he's going to fix things. He's going to make things better. But you probably know where I'm going with this. But research released last year showed that he's doing the exact opposite of what he expects, okay? This is a, a research paper that came out in this journal called PLOS One. It's freely available online. And this shows that if you shoot one wolf this year, next year wolf attacks increase by 4 to 6%. If you shoot 20 wolves, your chance of livestock attack by wolves doubles next year. Okay? So it's the exact opposite of what you'd expect, similar to the slug thing last night. The same thing, and this has been written up, and this is a, uh, an interesting online bloggy thing called Motherboard, where they, they wrote an interesting article about it, which is how I heard about it. So killing wolves leads to more livestock deaths. Not what you would expect, right? And actually, if you look into literature, the same thing happens with cougars in Washington state. The more you kill, the worse off your livestock are. So maybe we should kill less. And the reason for this is because wolves hunt in packs, right? This is different than the cougar thing. I'll get to the cougars in a moment. But wolves hunt in packs. And if you shoot wolves in packs, the, pass, the pack disbands. And then those individuals are on their own. Those individuals are on their own. And what's an easier thing to kill, livestock or deer? Livestock. It's a sitting duck, right? So by disrupting the pack, you disrupt the kind of the biology of the organism. Off they go. They choose the lower hanging fruit. For cougars, it seems that the juveniles are more keen on attacking livestock. So if you kill the older ones, um, they'll go kill livestock even more, right? It's, again, it's kind of a social issue. So my point in all this, um, visiting Yellowstone briefly, is that these food webs are far more complex than we realized, and by disrupting them, we can have unintended consequences. It's fairly logical, I think, and that guy with the orange hat was thinking this way, if we knock these top predators out, that's going to help because there won't be as many of our livestock killed. But because of this connectivity between all these things, the complexity, sometimes it works the opposite way. And that's what we're seeing with slugs. So this is more of a simple food web that you have in your crop field. We kind of the lower half of that food web is where my interest is. And the, and the top predators are these carabid beetles, but lady beetles, predaceous, be, uh, predaceous bugs, parasitic wasps are the things we're trying to maintain in crop fields. And we're interested in what happens when, when we take those out. We'll rejoin John Tucker's talk in a minute, but I wanted to take time to once again thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing Company, for supporting our No-Till Farmer podcast series. With a tradition of providing farmer solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter Manufacturing delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Now let's get back to the podcast as Tucker discusses the phenomenon of resurgence, or the rapid growth of a pest population following pesticide use, the suppression he believes some seed treatments may be causing of beneficial insects and natural predators, and the promise diverse no-till systems hold for hosting higher populations of these beneficials and lower populations of pests. So potato leafhopper shows up every year if you're an alfalfa grower, it's just how it is. In northern states like Pennsylvania, they come on spring storm fronts. They don't overwinter in Pennsylvania. They come up kind of every year. It's an annual pest. Populations tend to be awful, awfully spotty. Some growers in Pennsylvania never spray for this thing, and some growers in Pennsylvania always spray for this thing. Uh, it peaks in July, and your alfalfa looks kind of yellow and stunted. It's got, it, um, this pest causes something called hopper burn. 
It's fairly easy to find in Pennsylvania fields. Uh, if you just drive down a road, you can see it. You can pick it out from a distance. This is what it looks like from a distance. This is research from our, uh, um, from our forage guys, uh, Dr. Marvin Hall and his uh, former colleague, Justin Dillon. And this is a plot that was treated with a pyrethroid insecticide. You can see it looks a whole lot better there on the left-hand side versus the right-hand side, right? So this is clear evidence that insecticides are helpful, right? Again, I am not anti-insecticide. I want insecticides to be used properly. But this yellowed kind of stunted alfalfa is not what you're trying to grow. You're trying to grow that over there. And in really bad potato leafhopper years, you should do this, right? But what I've gotten in 2014, I got a lot of phone calls, particularly from Lancaster County, southeastern Pennsylvania, where a lot of farmers were dealing with aphids in alfalfa. This is something called the cowpea aphid, but there's a number of aphid species that'll show up in alfalfa. And the reason that these are showing up is something called resurgence. And the idea of resurgence is fairly simple. It's just the rapid regrowth of a pest population following pesticide use, okay? Here's just a little schematic to understand it. In this picture, the, the bigger red things are the predators, the little yellow things are the plant feeding insects. And what you're gonna do is you're gonna come through and you're gonna spray that with an insecticide. And then all that's gonna be left is a couple of those herbivores. The natural enemies are more sensitive to the insecticide than the plant feeding ones are. And that makes good sense because plant feeding insects deal with the toxins in plants all the time and that compound is gonna be similar to an insecticide. So if they can detoxify some of these things in here, sometimes they can handle the insecticides just fine, just by their own detoxification mechanisms. But anyway, after that insecticidal spray, you tend to have far fewer natural enemies, more herbivores kind of are hanging around. Then what's gonna happen, these guys have a, a better rate of increase, so their population is gonna increase in absence of those natural enemies, and then we have aphids in alfalfa. So those guys that had aphids in alfalfa were spraying every cutting, regardless of whether they needed to or not, right? So they weren't using IPM. They were kind of risk-averse farmers, and every time they cut, the next thing they did in that field was spray a pyrethroid. They would let it grow, they would cut, they would spray, cut, and spray. So this is kind of unconsidered insecticide use. They're risk-averse, but they're causing their own problem Right? So what I would prefer that these guys did is scout for potato leaf hopper. We have clear economic thresholds. If you're above the economic threshold, yes, it pays to spray. If you're below, it doesn't. Right? It's kind of basic IPM 101. And I, I went over this last night. Um, but, so are there anyone who didn't join us last night? I'm not trying to single you out, but I'll give you the story. So at least one person. So I'll do this quickly. Uh, in no-till, we have a, this slug problem in some fields, particularly in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania kind of no-till alliance is very familiar with this, and they kind of dragged me into this world. Slugs feed upon a lot of things. About 20% of no-till acreage um, in Pennsylvania, and then the Mid-Atlantic seems to suffer from slugs every year, and that can be an underestimate. And these are the data I shared last night. These two figures first are just about productivity. So this is yield on the y-axis, and this is number of soybean plants per acre on the x. So that positive relationship makes sense. Like right? the more plants per acre, the higher the yield, right? And then when you bring slugs into play, this is number of plants per acre and this is slugs. So as slugs go up, we have these little traps that capture our slugs. As these slugs go up, number of plants per acre comes down. But notice the color of the dots in both figures, right? The color of the dots, the open dots are our controls. The black dots are where we had the neonicotinoid insecticide on the seed. So this is thymethoxin, the active ingredient in cruiser, right? So where you don't have cruiser, you have a higher yield. Where you don't have cruiser, you have more plants per acre and fewer slugs. And then there's a predation side to this. If we measure predation in these fields, this is just some measure of predation. We don't need to go into gory details. And this number of slug predators in our traps. As slug predators go up, predation goes up. That makes good sense. There's more predators in the field. They're going to be killing more things. And then this is number of slugs per trap, and this is predation. As predation increases, the number of slugs comes down. Right? But again, notice the color of the dots. The open dots where we don't have the seed treatment tend to be on the right-hand side. Right? So we're getting more predation in the absence of the seed treatment. We're getting more predation, fewer slugs per trap in the absence of the seed treatment. So the seed treatment seem to be making things worse. They're disrupting biological control. And for those of you that weren't around last night, this is maybe understandable or logically maybe we've been able to predict this because slugs are mollusks, they're not insects, right? You need an insecticide to kill an insect, a molluscicide to kill a mollusk. And this is an insecticide that's getting in the slug. It's not influencing the slug, as a slug at all. It's in the slug's body. But then when the predator comes intact, it's getting a killing or at least a 
poisoning dose of that insecticide, right? So the bottom line is that we want to manage for the pests we have, right? Insecticides may be doing the exact opposite of what you expect, which is where that example in Yellowstone comes in. Yellowstone National Park is far more similar to your field than you realize, right? And part of my um, kind of preaching, I guess I would call it, is that diversity improves pest control. And we have a project at Penn State that's been dubbed this Diversified Dairy Cropping Systems Project. It's led by an agronomist named Heather Karsten. She's kind of managing a team of about 17 scientists like myself to ask a variety of questions. And the insect questions aren't driving this research at all. We're just kind of piggybacking along. Um, and the goal of this thing is to compare three rotations. Well, the, the big goal is to grow all the fuel and feed for an average sized dairy farm. So it includes canola and we're pressing the canola and that's being used in a straight vegetable oil tractor. But the, the, the main, the heart of this thing are, are, are kind of three rotations. There's one two-year corn-soybean rotation with no cover crops. And then there's two six-year rotation that has cover crops, alfalfa, um, corn, and small grains. And from an insect pest management perspective, they're quite different. In this simplified rotation, we're kind of throwing the kitchen sink at the insects like some growers do. We're using BT corn uh, seed treatments, broadcast pyrethroid just after planting to manage things like black cutworm and true armyworm. And these two six-year rotations, we're using IPM. So uh, folks that work with me scout these fields every week. We're looking for pest population. Um, so we're scouting and treating as necessary, right? And we have needed to treat. We've needed to treat for potato leafhopper. We've needed to, needed to treat for true armyworm. And this is kind of very typical data from what we see. I could pull data from any of the years so far, and this is what we see. This is proportions of caterpillars surviving the night. Um, again, we take caterpillars, we put a pin through them, we put that pin in the ground so they're kind of sitting ducks. We see what comes and eats them. And the green is the corn-soybean rotation, the blue is the forage, and the white is the grain rotation. And the lower the number here, the better. So this is proportion of caterpillars surviving. So if you have a really active natural energy population in your fields, you would hope that none of the uh, caterpillars would survive the night. And we see far fewer survive the night in these more diverse rotations than in the corn-bean rotation with the kitchen sink. Now there's two factors playing here. Right? There's the factor of the insecticides being used. The seed treatment and the pyrethroid are probably depressing the natural enemy populations. But it's also that the diversity is increasing the natural enemy population. So this difference is being contributed to by the insecticides bringing down natural enemy populations and this diversity increasing natural enemy populations, causing for this, this big difference. And I showed this figure last night. These data were from this um, diversified cropping systems project. This is the number of slugs per shingle on the y-axis and carabid beetles on the x-axis, ground beetles, in alfalfa in black and corn in red. So this negative relationship is what we're after, right? The more carabid beetles you have, the lower the slug population. The fewer carabid beetles you have, the higher the slug population, okay? So that negative relationship really means a lot to me. It's kind of the basis of our research. And if you can see this relationship in the field, then it really pays to try to maximize those natural enemies somehow. <laughs> but this is a study from Delaware, and I give them credit for this study, and they did something very similar to our Dairy Cropping Systems Project, where they compared four rotations, a continuous corn rotation, a corn bean rotation, corn bean wheat rotation, and a corn soy wheat rotation with cover crops. So this is the most diverse. In this last one, they're using IPM. This one, they're using preventative insecticides. And these two in the middle are kind of a gradation. So while the most insecticides here, less here, less here, the least here, but they were putting it on as necessary in this case, okay? And as you could probably expect, the worst pest problems are here in their work in 2003, okay? And the pests they're dealing with here are uh, European corn borer and Western corn rootworm. So far more European corn borer and Western corn rootworm where we're using insecticides because we can, and far less where we're using them on purpose. Okay, and then so it's a no-till conference, right? You guys know that tillage strongly influences soil-dwelling animals. That applies for earthworms, but it also applies for these ground beetles. I already mentioned that those larvae are subterranean, right? They're rolling around underground. They're looking for anything to eat. Uh, also the case for this whole suite of predators that we're dealing with. Tillage will disrupt those populations. And if these crabbed beetles, just as an example, or even these wolf spiders can eat a slug, a nasty, slimy, junk-covered slug, eating a black cutworms, that's child's play, right? So if you can maximize population and deal with this guy, then everything else is pretty simple. 
If I gave you a choice between a slug and a caterpillar, which are you going to eat? What's that? You're, you'll starve. You'll starve. Oh no. <laughs> you can cook them both, but I would. I would. I mean. I mean the escargot. Right. The, so the French eat snails, and so maybe a slug would taste good with a lot of butter and a lot of garlic. I haven't tried that yet. <laughs> One gentleman was speaking earlier about eating ground, uh, eating mealworms. Maybe we could spice it up a little bit by throwing slugs in the mix. Right. And cover crops increase the number of things out there because they're providing habitat. Right. So driving down here, I was disappointed to see how few cover crop fields I saw coming through Ohio. It's a little bit different, at least maybe, maybe it's biased, but a little, little bit different in Pennsylvania. You see more cover cropping, which is good. And these cover crops, they provide winter habitat, they provide late fall habitat, and they just provide more things um, for insects to explore. There's more food sources, there's more kind of coverage. It's just more habitat. Right? And there are soil benefits, soil um, health benefits that you guys certainly know about um, for cover crops. They're, they build soil organic matter, they improve soil fertility, they reduce erosion and all these things. But I would put these last two higher on the list than the agronomists and the cover croppers would put. Right? I want to maximize these natural enemy populations. You're enhancing soil organisms, you're creating habitat for insect predators, and that's a good thing. Right? So I thought I would focus on one crop just as a little case study. So soybeans are a great example of where you can implement IPM. So if you don't do IPM now and you're growing corn and beans, soybeans is the place to start. Okay? Soybeans face a suite of sporadic pest species, but until about 2000, generally speaking, folks didn't put insecticides on soybeans because one of the, one of the benefits of soybeans is there was no insect pest of soybeans. Right? But then soybean aphid arrived and kind of the thinking about soybeans kind of switched. And now insecticides are put on soybeans pretty routinely, but I don't typically see the need. Okay? The key here is that they face a suite of sporadic pests. None are guaranteed to show. Uh, sometimes they do, but the only way you know if they show is if you're in that field looking. Another aspect of soybeans, which is quite interesting, is they can tolerate 30, 25 to 30% defoliation before, they sh before those flowers show up. After the flowers show, it's close to 15% defoliation. So it's different depending on the stage of the plant. But this is 15% defoliation. This is 20% defoliation. A lot of growers get very nervous when they see this level of defoliation. They say, I've got to protect my plant. But, if, so, but you need to have defoliation closer to this over your entire field throughout the canopy to justify spraying your soybeans. Now, I have heard, I've stood to the side while I've heard crop consultants see damage like this on a few plants and say, oh, you better spray that thing, man. Right? And that's misleading. It's not true. We have research that shows that if you have this level of damage, you don't lose an ounce of yield because soybeans are tolerant of it. But it's human nature to see this and say, that's bad. That's not good. But I'm what I would encourage you to do is to trust the research that I'm sharing with you today. And until you get up to this level, throughout your field, throughout the canopy, you're okay. okay? And I know it's easy for a chemical rep to say, that's not good, Jim, you should spray. But this is when you need to stand up and say, BS, pal. Get out of my field. <laughs> right? Are you looking for a predator to keep it down to 10% or so? Well, yeah, so the, we're thinking the whole system we're trying to build up to so the natural enemies. So there's two things going on here. One, the soybean plants are good at uh, kind of tolerating this level of damage. And two, by using IPM, you're going to maximize your natural enemy populations, and that will help keep this defoliation down. Yeah, so there's two things going on. In soybeans, preventative treatments are unlikely to be useful because you're usually putting those on when you want to put them on, not when the insects need them on. That's typically the case for preventive insecticides. You're putting them on because you're going across the field, the weather is right. It has rarely has something to do with the, the life cycle of the insects. And for most insect species in soybeans, we have economic thresholds, and we know what rescue treatments work. Okay, so again, if you need an insecticide, we can do that. Now here's an example. I always use soybean aphid as an example because it's most clear cut. Um, this is number of aphids per plant. This is over the kind of growing season. That green line is the economic threshold for soybean aphids, 250 aphids per plant. Okay? This is, again, work from my colleague at Iowa State, uh, Matt O'Neill. And this preventative application occurred here at R1 and R2. The, the uh, grower was going over the field. The, this was a research thing, but the grower would have been going over the field anyway to apply a fungicide or an herbicide or something like that. Well, I guess it's kind of late for an herbicide. Maybe not. I don't know. I'm an entomologist. Uh, but they applied their preventative application here, right? And you can see 
that they needed another, so sorry, let me walk you through this. The, the red is the untreated. The black line is the preventative. So here we apply a preventative insecticide application. The, the aphid population comes along. It spikes here at the beginning of August. You need another application of insecticide to bring it back down. Whereas the green is the IPM. You've just, we didn't do anything, right? We just left it alone. We left it alone, left it alone. Look, it's above economic threshold. Our scout caught that. We applied our rescue treatment. And look, the population came back down, OK? This is exactly what you would expect from IPM. So we have one treatment where we used IPM. We had twice as many, two treatments, where we used preventative. You would have expected that your preventative application would prevent you from having to do two, but it actually encourages it to because you're, natural, you're knocking out those natural enemies that can control soybean aid. To go a step further, in Pennsylvania for the past couple years, I've organized what we call the Soybean Sentinel Plot Program. It's, uh, it's funded by the Pennsylvania Soybean Board. And what we have are we have extension educators across the state that are willing to go scout soybean fields. We just ask them to look for typical soybean fields. They visit those fields every week, and they report to me on what they found. And we put that information on our, on our newsletter that people get in their email, or it's on a website, right? So we share it by something called the Field Crop News, uh, or we put it on an entomology website. They're reporting the number of insects they see, kind of the, the pest populations of that, and diseases, right? And we typically have in the ballpark about 20 fields. And this is the website where we put it on. If you just Googled uh, Soybean Sentinel Plot Program or Penn State or something like that, it'll come up pretty fast. Um, and so we've done this for three years in a row, which equates to about 60 field years that we have seen. Um, and we have found no treatable pest population so far of anything, right? Um, the most common things we've seen are soybean aphid. Uh, we have brown marmorated stink bug in Pennsylvania, but the populations have been pretty mild since 2010. Uh, and we haven't had to treat for that either. Japanese beetles are usually out there, but in numbers that make people perhaps uncomfortable but aren't causing economic damage because the level of defoliation is less than those numbers I gave you before, that 25% or 15% if there are flowers there. We certainly find diseases. Septoria brown spot, frog eye leaf spot are the most common ones that have been found here. But we know, again, the economic thresholds of these guys. And if necessary, we'd put a fungicide on these fields. But it hasn't been necessary in the three years that we've been doing this. And this just emphasizes to me that most Pennsylvania soybean fields do not develop economically damaging pest populations. But to find out if yours is among the ones that do, well, then, heck, you need a scout out there looking for you. If you can't do it yourself, I would think that your input costs would be better diverted over to a scout to find out if you need to spray or not. So you have to scout to know. You can't just guess from driving past the field. So true armyworm is a nice example of this. So people often put preventative insecticides on their cornfields because they're afraid of true armyworm. I understand afraid of true armyworm, Mike. We've seen some pretty bad outbreaks. Uh, this thing, you need to understand the biology, though, to understand why preventative applications typically don't work. These guys, like potato leafhopper, migrate into Pennsylvania from southern states. In southern Ohio, southern Indiana, you guys will get it earlier, but it's coming up from kind of Gulf states. The populations are sporadic. Some flyways are, are really, like, true army really takes to those flyways, but they avoid other ones if they come up. Um, they lay eggs on grasses, like they feed in wheat and corn and hay fields, and then oftentimes they'll move to corn when a cover crop is killed or when the weeds are killed, something like that. And kind of the rule of thumb has been that when your rye is burned down late, you're at a greater risk of damage from these guys. But nothing can prevent really big populations, right? So in 2000, uh, 2012, Pennsylvania folks, 2012, we had those booming populations, right? 2012, we had booming populations of true armyworm across Pennsylvania particularly in central and northern Pennsylvania, up into New York State. And this, uh, that was that real mild winter. So the populations were present down south. The mild winter maybe allowed them to survive better. We're not sure about that. But they came up in droves, just kept coming. And the window of their uh, uh, arrival was about a month long, it seemed. And if you put one insecticide application down, you're not going to cover a month risk, right? So most likely, if you use an application that year, um, to a kind of preventive application, you probably missed it. We experienced true armyworm in good abundance in our research plots. This is that from that same cropping systems project. We had a lot of true armyworm damage, but we saw it. We responded with an insecticide as appropriate, um, and we dealt with it. Uh, the populations were kind of crazy. 
Uh, these are two, that's, these are kind of, one. this is the same field. These are hay fields. All the leaves were gone out. This is a, um, this is a, uh, a mixed hay field. No, that's, a, sorry, a, a grass hay field from New York State. And from this lower field, this is, this is the video of the mower. The guy didn't know that he had true armyworm. So those are the true armyworms on the mower after he was done harvesting. He's like, whoa, I guess I have a problem. Right? And I'm not critical of this guy because who scouts hay fields? Gerard, do you scout hay fields? Oh, Gerard's the only guy in the room who scouts hay fields. Most people ignore hay fields because these problems are unlikely. But I, I would say that if you're concerned about this in your cornfield, that you're more likely to scout that than you are your hay field. But there's just booming populations in 2012, and the best way to deal with it that year was to find the population and respond to it, put an insecticide on as necessary. For true armyworm, there are other management options, right? So we know seed treatments do not help, so don't rely on the seed treatments. So there's limited BT options. Preventive, as I've mentioned so far, preventive insecticides are, can be helpful, but they're often ineffective because the timing is off. Again, you're driving the timing Rarely are folks driving the timing based off the arrival of the caterpillar. Pheromone trapping can help, so if you really want to get into this, you can buy a pheromone trap like this. Uh, they're readily available from companies. Gempler sells them, Great Lakes IPM sells them. And you can time your insecticide application for the arrival of true armyworm. If you start to get a, a big number of moths in there, you can say, oh, that two weeks from now, the, the caterpillar should be around. You can, you can kind of take that approach. It's, it's not perfect, but it, it's uh, using some information. And then most folks rely on kind of local and regional reports. They, their neighbor, or you hear on the news in 2012, there are a lot of news reports, a lot of reporters calling me, saying, look at these amazing populations of true armyworm. And then you know, wow, I should go check my field. And then you go do it, right? But scouting is the best way to tackle this. Just have someone visit your field fairly regularly. Don't plant them and ignore them, but plant them and kind of embrace them, right? Um, and True armyworm has three generations per year. The most damaging tends to be the first generation, but in these really big years we've seen in Pennsylvania, the second generation also causes problems, and that needs to be scouted as well. And then rescue sprays are the most effective. We have a long list of compounds, insecticides, that can be used to kill true armyworm. There's a, here's a more expensive option for feeling spendy. Something called Intrepid 2F is a caterpillar-specific growth regulator. It will have no influence on natural enemy populations. So we've used that where we can, but it is more expensive. You need to be kind of committed to this. One of the more interesting points that John made, I think, is the need for increased efforts by no-tillers to scout their fields or hire someone to handle that task so they can invest their money in crop protection products more wisely and safeguard the environment at the same time. If you're looking for more ways to improve soil health and reduce pest pressure on your own farm, consider what the National No-Tillage Conference has to offer. Join us at the Indianapolis Downtown Marriott, January 8th through the 11th, 2019 for the 27th Annual National No-Tillage Conference. Register online today for just $304 and $85 savings off the full rate. Save even more when you register additional farm family members for just $279. Or complete and return the downloadable registration form by going to www.notillconference.com. To register by phone or to speak with an NNTC staff member, please call 866-839-8455. Or you can email your questions to nntc at no-tillfarmer.com. Now let's return to the program and listen as John Tucker reviews some basics of an integrated pest management program, discusses the economics of whether to treat a cash crop for pests, and why taking a longer range view of pest management practices is important to no-till success. The research that we've done so far and the kind of the, the thinking that I have is that more diverse rotation have fewer pest problems, okay? So consider no-till, you guys are doing that, that's great. Um, diversification, the more you can diversify in my opinion, the better. The more diverse you can make that rotation, the more cover crops you can in, put in there, the um, less repeats you have, say, in a six-year period, uh, the better off you are. That's gonna help build natural enemy populations. And then I'm really encouraging folks to scrutinize their insecticide use. And I like to use the word optimize because they are valuable tools. Where again, we're not avoiding insecticides. We wanna use them when necessary. So if we can optimize to make their use most efficient, that's what we wanna do. All right, and I talk about all types of insecticide applications, seed applied, soil applied, and foliar applications, okay? 
Um, and then I'm a big fan of integrated pest management, so we want to scout, use economic thresholds, and use insecticides only when it makes economic sense. I already showed you that field of the armyworm outbreak. Um, so just to kind of solidify this idea of integrated pest management, maybe it's been a while since you've talked about it with anybody. So this is just a pest management approach that combines different types of tools, right? Rather than relying on a single tactic over and over and over, we're going to use a suite of tactics as best we can. Okay? So using BT against rootworms, as Christian discussed last night, that's not, that's not IPM. Just blindly doing that year after year, that's what led to the resistance problem. We want to avoid resistance problems. And we want to, our goal is to reduce pest populations to less than damaging numbers. Because having insects in your field isn't a bad thing. Having insects that are large enough to cause economic loss, that's the bad thing. Okay? And we want to avoid problems with resistance and pollution. When it comes to insecticides, overusing them just leads to these two problems, and that's not good for anybody. But again, the, the main point to remember is that the goal of IPM is not to eliminate all pests. We want something in the field. Something, that something is providing kind of part of the food web for these insects we're trying to maintain. So for integrated pest management, we treat only when necessary. We consider the economics, so we want to treat when the value of the damage equals the cost of the treatment. So if it costs $10 to treat an acre, and you're only losing $4 per acre because of the insect feeding, it makes no sense. It makes no economic sense to go in there and play $10 when you're only losing. Why spend 10 when you're only losing four, right? These things have to be equal. If you're losing 15 and it costs 10 to treat, yeah, yeah, by all means. That, I mean, that makes, that's a good equation. Let's go do that. Uh, but so these insecticides, when we use them, they, they, sh they probably, I say can, but probably disrupt soil health. Unfortunately, we have very little information on newer modes of action, little newer chemistries on soil uh, arthropods, soil micro and macrofauna. Um, it depends, this influence depends on chemistry. It depends on the timing of the application. If you're putting a foliar application at R2 on your soybeans, very little of that insecticide is going to reach the soil. Right? Mostly it's going to hit the leaves, and they probably have little influence on soil health. Uh, it's going to depend on the dose, how much gets to the soil. It's going to depend on the route of exposure. So a lot of things go into this, but generally speaking, those insecticides are not helping soil health but maybe their, uh, their influence is minimized by some of these factors here. Like neonics are far hotter on these type of things than say a pyrethroid would be, okay? So maybe you know this, maybe you don't. I don't think I mentioned it last night, but neonics, some are 100,000 times more toxic than nicotine. I did mention that last night because I made fun of the smokers, right? Um, but these specific effects are, are very unpredictable, but I can say without qualifying it that the insecticides are not improving soil health. So if you're a real believer, you're starting to catch on to the soil health movement, soil, these insecticides aren't making it any better. They can only have a downside. Uh, we did this. Um, so a few comments on seed treatments. I banged on seed treatments a little bit last night. They do not control everything, right? So you have seed treatment on your corn. That label has a limited number of insects on it, right? You shouldn't expect to be able to control true armyworm, black cutworm, slugs, aphids, or anything like that with these things. Uh, they can provide value when the pests are around, but the key and the hard part, I will admit, the hard part is knowing when the pests are going to be around or where they're going to be. And these guys do have some negative effects, right? I went over one last night and then touched on it before. They exacerbate some pest problems. Um, they're going to have some influence on the soil community. We're putting neonics on the seeds and they're drawn into the soil and they're taken up by the roots. Only about 20% of the neonic is actually leaving the soil going into the plant, so 80% staying behind. What it's doing there, we do not know. But it's not, we can probably assume it's not a benefit to the soil community, right? Things aren't eating that stuff and really firing up. Thank you, Laura. And in my mind, resistance is going to arrive before too long. I've shown this map once before. This is clothianidin in use in 2003. Clothianidin is the active ingredient in poncho. 2003, this is how much was used in the United States. That's what it looked like in 2011. The darker the color, the more insecticide, and the dark, dark color is over a pound of active ingredient per acre. It's amazing. That's the biggest deployment of insecticide in US history. Right? And you can sell the same exact figure for soybeans. So my question is always, oh, and it's this, this is clothianidin, and so poncho, this is kind of the use by crop. It's corn, right? Corn is driving this. And corn, 
in this 97 million acres of corn in the United States, plus or minus a little bit, you know, 95% of it saw a seed treatment last year. Is that necessary? We don't have that level of pest concern. No entomologist in this country is going to say 97 million acres of corn are at risk from wireworm or seed corn maggot. It's crazy, right? So ask yourself, do you need them on all your acres? Why are you putting them there? Are they, are they helping you sleep better at night? I bet they are. But the amount of control you're getting is probably less than you expect because the pests aren't there. If you have a field that you know gets wireworms every year, that's where you put it. If you're coming out of sod into corn, that's where to put them because the risk of damage is higher. Yeah, there, there can be value. And don't take, me, don't take this the wrong way. I don't want people just to close their eyes to them. They're, again, they're valuable tools, but they need to be kind of stewarded a little bit better. And I would also say that the, the, um, I get this comment a lot that, I, that it, sometimes it pays for itself, right? And it's easy for me to say this as an entomologist, I'm not farming. But I think that way of thinking kind of damages the farming system, right? So if I can pay for it this year, then that's okay. That, that way of thinking, I think, is a little bit flawed because what we want to take in farming is a more of a longer range view and understand the sustainability of the entire system. And if there are these water pollution problems because we use it this year, that's not being accounted for in that equation. We'd like to sincerely thank John Tucker for sharing some outstanding information about integrated pest management and how no-tillers can make their pest control program more effective without causing harm to their healthy no-tilled soils and the environment. For those listeners who would like to hear more about successful strategies for no-tilling, please visit no-tillfarmer.com slash podcasts. Again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing Company, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, feel free to drop me an email at jdoberstein at lessetermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2430. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer, with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R, and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For John Tucker, Yetter Manufacturing Company, and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Senior Editor John Dauberstein. Thank you for listening. 